The story is told of President Calvin Coolidge. He was a president in the 1920s. And at one time, President Coolidge invited some friends from his hometown to come and visit him for dinner at the White House. Now, these people had never been to the White House, and they were quite intimidated by this prospect that they're going to go to the White House and eat dinner. They were nervous. They weren't sure about proper etiquette. You know, what do you do when you eat with the president and have dinner at the White House? They said, you know, we don't know which forks to use at what time. We don't know which foods to eat first and how to go about this thing. So they discussed amongst themselves a plan, and their plan was this. We're just going to watch the president, and whatever he does, we'll just do the same thing. We'll just imitate him, right? When he shakes hands, we'll shake hands. If he takes off his hat, we'll take off our hat. We'll just do exactly what he does and follow his lead. So they go to the White House, and, and it seems that their strategy is working great. They follow the president's every move. They use the utensils that he uses when he uses them. They eat the, the, even the foods that he eats when he chooses to eat those particular foods. And the strategy seems to be working great. The only thing is this, that uh, President Coolidge had caught on to what they were doing. And so, uh, so when coffee was served at the end of the meal, uh, President Coolidge, he took his coffee cup and he poured his coffee into his plate. And so they all said... Uh, well, all right, so they all kind of just, you know, poured their coffee onto their plate. And then, he, uh, then he went on to, you know, mix in cream and sugar, so they just did the same. They figured that this is what we do here. Then President Coolidge took his plate and set it on the floor for the cat. And, uh, and everybody was just kind of left there with plates full of coffee, not really sure what to do. The title of today's message is Table Manners. And today as we continue in Paul's letter to the Galatians, this second chapter is all about the importance of preserving the purity of the gospel of grace. That's what it's about, about preserving the purity of the gospel of grace. And in this chapter, Paul tells, uh, he tells a story which takes place in two scenes. And both of these scenes take place at a table. The first is a conference table and the second is a dinner table. And many of you here are probably very familiar with these two locations. These are locations that might just sum up most of your life. Conference table at work and dinner table at home, right? The conference table is the place of discussion where issues are discussed, they're thought through, and where decisions are made. The dinner table is a place of fellowship. It's a place of fellowship with family and friends, a place where we share in community and togetherness. And as we look at this section and both of these tables, it's important to remember the setting that Paul's writing into. Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians, actually a group of churches really, who have turned away from the simplicity of the gospel of grace. And they have turned to a legalistic form of Christianity. See, legalism is when you believe that you must earn God's favor by your actions. When you try to have a legal relationship with God, that's why it's called legalism. You're trying to have a legal relationship with God. In other words, I'll do this for you if you do this for me in return. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you, right? It's a legal kind of relationship. I'll do these things for you, God, all right? But I am going to expect some things in return, okay? It's that kind of attitude. Is that kind of thinking familiar to any of you? I'm sure it is because I think that all people 
struggle with this kind of thinking because in many ways this is how many of the institutions that we're used to in this world work. But with God it's different. God doesn't function in this way. He functions on the basis of grace. So what Paul is telling them, which is absolutely just as relevant for us today, is this. Legalism is not just a bad habit. Legalism is fundamentally wrong because it is a different gospel. It is a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a bad habit. It is a different gospel. It's very serious. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that in Jesus Christ, it is finished. That's what Jesus declared, and it, and it is so. It is finished. Everything that needed to be done in order for you to be forgiven and saved and to have God's favor upon your life and to have God's blessing in your life, it was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. See, the one thing which separates us from God, the one thing that would keep us from God, the thing which puts us at enmity with God is sin. God is absolutely holy. He can have nothing to do with sin. So our sin cuts us off from a holy God. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that our sins can be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ who died in our place. And if our sins have been washed away in Jesus Christ, then all barriers between us and God have been removed. In other words, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. You don't have to earn God's favor. You just have to receive God's favor. You don't have to earn God's blessings. You don't have to earn your salvation. You have to receive them by faith. They're yours freely when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. It's the message of amazing grace. So Paul writes this letter to them. I call it his manifesto of grace. It is an urgent appeal for the gospel. It's this letter in which he brings us face to face with the implications of the gospel, the implications of what all Jesus really accomplished for us on the cross through his death and resurrection and what that means for us personally, what that means for us practically. The key verse which really sums up what this chapter here, chapter 2, is all about is a very profound statement that Paul makes at the end of the chapter in which he says this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. See, here's the point. If it were possible for a person to earn their salvation by being good enough, by doing enough right things, then they, that would mean that they could save themselves, right? And if it's possible for a person to save themselves, then Jesus died in vain. He could have done something else with his time other than coming to this earth and dying for us. Imagine this. Imagine that your house catches on fire, right? You're sitting around doing whatever you do at home. Your house catches on fire. You gather all your kids and you say, kids, we got to get out of the house. It's going down. So you get your kids out of the house and you're standing on your front yard and you're just watching your house burn down because there's nothing you can do to save it. And then all of a sudden, I run up to you, I, I'm driving by, I see the smoke, and I, I pull up in front of your house and I say, hey, let me show you how much I love you. And then I run into your house and I just go down with the whole house and I just, I just die in this fiery inferno. You'd be like, well, what was that? <laughs> right? This guy just 
What in the world did he do that for, you know? What a tragic and pointless waste of life, right? We were all fine. We're just standing here watching our house go down. We're sad our house is going down. But now we're extra sad because this guy that we don't know just ran up and, <laughs> and ran into our house and died. Now, now think about this. What if, same situation, you're standing on your front yard watching your house burn down and you realize oh no, we left Jimmy inside, right? Little Jimmy. And then I drive up, I pull up in front of your house and I say, hey, let me show you how much I love you. And I run into your house and I bring Jimmy out, but in the process of saving Jimmy, I die. What would you say? You'd say, truly, that man cared about us. Truly, that man loved us. Look at what he did for us. That wasn't a pointless waste of his life. He used his life to save Jimmy, right? Here's the point, which, which really God is wanting to communicate to us here in Galatians. The problem with legalism is that it sets aside the grace of God. If you believe that God's favor on your life and the salvation of your soul are things which you can earn, then why do you need Jesus, right? He's, in that case, if you're just fine without him, then he's just like a man running into a burning building and sacrificing his life completely unnecessarily. If we can save ourselves, here's what Paul's saying, Christ's death is pointless. It means nothing, but here's the deal. If we realize that what God's word says is true, that we are hopeless on our own, that we cannot save ourselves, that we are utterly lost and hopeless and separated from God, then Christ's death will mean everything to us. It will cause us to want to spend the rest of our lives that he's given us here on earth in joyful service to him. It will change our whole perspective on how we see God, on how we see our lives, and we will begin to see everything in light of that thing that he did on the cross, that act that he did on the cross, in light of the gospel. So let's begin by looking at this uh, first setting in our text, which is the first table here in this first scene. It is the conference table. Please read along with me if you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first couple verses. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running and or had not run in vain. So 14 years after Paul's first trip, which he took to Jerusalem after he became a Christian, Paul goes up to Jerusalem again, and this time he takes with him these two guys. They're going up for a meeting, Barnabas and Titus. The three of them, they go up for this kind of conference. It's a big meeting. Now, Paul and Barnabas and Titus at this point, they were part of a, a move of God that was happening up in the city of Antioch. There was this church that had come about, and this was a very special and unique work of God. One of the things that was so unique about it was this. That church up in Antioch was one of the first multicultural churches um, that existed in the, in the early, you know, growth of Christianity. The early church was really mostly made up of Jews, but Antioch was, was different because it was multicultural, it was multi-ethnic. There were Jews and Greeks coming together, laying aside their differences to worship Jesus and become one in him. 
What we read in the book of Acts is that Antioch is the first place where the followers of Jesus were called Christians. And the word Christian, right, it meant little Christ's. And, and actually what's interesting is that the people who said this, they meant it as, as a bit of a slight to them, as a bit of an insult, kind of a jab, you know, kind of a, a mocking thing. But the thing was the Christians actually really liked this. They said, well, that's quite the compliment that you would look at us and you would think that we remind you of Jesus. They, they said, we'll just embrace that. Yeah, call us Christians all you want. I used to work in this snowboard shop before I moved to Hungary. And, uh, and my boss there, he wasn't a Christian, and he, he had this nickname for me. Uh, he would always call me Jesus. So he would say, hey, Jesus, get over here and help the customers. You know, hey, Jesus, move those snowboards to the storage room or something like that. And you know what? I was kind of like, I know he means this as an insult to me, but I really like it. I, find it. I find it quite flattering that someone would look at me and associate me with Jesus. I guess that means I must be doing something right right? So here's this church in Antioch, the first place where they're called Christians, this wonderful work of God. It's one of the first churches that's sending out missionaries and supporting them. This was a happening place. It was a move of God. You know, up until this point of the church in Antioch, the, the way that Christianity spread was mostly among the Jews. Because indeed, Jesus had come to the Jewish people as the Messiah of Israel. And the Jewish people, right, they had all the background that they needed to understand who Jesus was, why he had come, and all that stuff. All the promises that he fulfilled with his life, the promises to Abraham and the patriarchs and the prophets, they had all the background. So the most natural thing in the world would be for Christianity to spread amongst the Jews. The only thing was this. Jesus didn't come as Savior of the Jews only. He came as a savior of the whole world, right? And if Jesus really sent his disciples and commissioned them to go out and preach the gospel to every creature and make disciples of all nations, well, that means that at some point they're going to have to move beyond Jewish Christianity. They're going to have to move to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're going to have to start talking about Chinese Christianity and African Christianity. And the nearest culture to them was the Greeks, so Antioch was the first major test of this. What would it look like if there were people who were not Jewish who became Christians? What would that look like? And the fundamental basic question that they were dealing with at this time was this. Do people have to keep the Old Testament law and customs in order to be saved? And there was a faction, really, there was kind of a division amongst the Christians at that time. There was a faction of Christians who said, no, you don't. All that you need to do to be saved is put your faith in Jesus Christ because he paid it all on the cross. And then there was also another faction who said, well, of course, yes, you do. If you want to be a Christian, you can't just do whatever you want. There are laws which God's given. You've got to keep those. These people were called the legalists, Right? And these legalists, they started going around to all these new Greek Christians, to all the church plants that had been started through the missionary efforts of Paul and Barnabas. And they started telling them, you know, hey, haven't you guys heard about keeping God's law? Paul didn't tell you about that. We didn't give you the whole story. You have to keep God's law. Look, there are all these laws here. If you don't keep them, you can't expect God to bless you and, and you're not going to go to heaven. And the biggest one for them, the you know, biggest sign of whether or not you were keeping the law of God was you have to be circumcised. 
Or else it doesn't matter how much you believe in Jesus, if you're not circumcised, you're going to go to hell. So you can imagine they would go to these churches and tell them this news, and, and probably some of these Greek guys were like, hmm, well, I'm going to have to think about this because neither of these options sounds very good, right? Circumcision or hell, give me a few days, right? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, this isn't really what I signed up for, right? I just want to follow Jesus. I didn't know about this other thing. I'm not very excited about that. Now, this might all sound very foreign and distant to us here today, but the root issue that's being uh, dealt with here is something which is absolutely relevant to where we are today as Christians. And the root issue is this. What must a person do in order to be saved? What must a person do in order to have the favor of God upon their life, to have God be happy with them, in other words? And this is the reason why Paul, he goes up with these two guys to Jerusalem because the apostles had called together a meeting, a conference. They're going to get together, they're going to search the scriptures, they're going to seek the Lord, and they're going to come to a decision on this issue. This is a meeting that we actually read about in another book of the Bible, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. So leaders of the church, they come together and they seek the Lord, they search the scriptures to determine the answer to this question. What must a person do in order to be saved? Are people saved simply by believing in Jesus or must they also keep the law in order to be saved, in order to have God's favor upon their lives? And if it isn't necessary to keep the law, then will we continue to require people to keep the law? The conclusion they came to is this. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice for all the sins of the world. And since that's the case, nothing else is needed in order to reconcile man and God. Only that they receive by faith that which Jesus has done for them. This is the great doctrine of justification by faith. To be justified means this. So it's kind of a heady word, but all it means is this. To be justified is to be made acceptable for fellowship with God acceptable for fellowship with God. And, and what became clear as these guys studied the scriptures and sought the Lord is that the point and the purpose of Jesus' life and death on the cross, the point of his resurrection was to justify us before God by taking away our sin, by giving us a new life, and, and in return, Jesus took our sin upon himself. One of the words that Paul uses for this is the word imputation. That's another big word, but that's also a simple concept. Imputation, it means to pay to one's account, to assess something to someone. Right? This would be uh, what happened here is on the cross, God imputed all of our sins onto Jesus. He assigned them to him. He put them in his account. And in return, he imputed all of Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life, onto us, paid it into our account. So here's the thing, and, and this is the problem with legalism. Legalism is when you are trying to justify yourself. Have you ever heard the word self-justification? Well, that's what we're talking about. Justifying yourself before God rather than being justified in Jesus. It's trying to earn that which you could never earn, no matter how hard you try, rather than simply receiving that which has already been purchased for you and paid in full. So what these apostles concluded at this meeting is this. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. 
And all these men, the apostles, they searched the scriptures, they sought the Lord, they came to the same conclusion here at the conference table. Jesus paid it all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That was the equation. So as far as regards what a person must do in order to become a Christian, the answer was this, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because on the cross, Jesus paid it all. And if you put your faith in him, then God will impute all of Christ's righteousness to you and impute all of your sin onto him. You know, someone might ask today, well, well then where does all this other stuff come in? What about reading the Bible? What about going to church? What about being baptized? What about giving of my time and money and resources to the church and the furtherance of the gospel? Well, and that's the point that they made at this meeting. These aren't things that you do in order to be saved. Those are things that you get to take part in because you are saved. Those who've tasted the liberty, and some of you know this, you've tasted the liberty that comes through Jesus Christ from being set free from bondage to vanity, from being set free from bondage to sin. And when you taste that freedom, that hope of eternal life, it changes you. It makes you want to know this God who loves you so much that he did all this for you. It makes you eager to spread this message that other people might come to know what you've known in Jesus Christ. You begin to look for opportunities to serve him to show your appreciation, to help other people to meet him and find the freedom that you found in him. That's how it works. So we read here in chapter 2 that Paul took with him Titus. Now he, Titus, the reason he took him with him is because Titus was a Greek convert to Christianity. So he's kind of a test case for these guys. They're going down to this meeting and Paul's taking this guy and he's saying, look, here's this guy Titus. He loves Jesus. But guess what? Understandably, he doesn't really want to be circumcised if he doesn't have to. So what do you guys say? Are you going to make him do it anyway? And there was very much rejoicing when they said, no, Titus does not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. All he has to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be a Christian brother. Not a second class citizen of a Christian, but a full Christian brother. So this was the conference table. It was the place of discussion, the place of fellowship where these men gathered with open hearts to God and scriptures open before them. They explored what are the implications of the gospel. What did Jesus accomplish through his death on the cross? And their conclusion was this. Jesus paid it all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. They preserved the purity of of the gospel of grace. Now the story continues and we, we shift our focus to the next scene here in, in the same story which is the dinner table. We read this from, I believe this is verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I, that's Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For when cer before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Here's what's going on. There was a radical thing happening up in Antioch. Jews and Greeks were eating together. Now that might not sound like a big deal to you, but it was a huge deal. Jews normally would not have eaten meals, shared meals with Greeks because they considered Greeks to be unclean. And for a Jewish person, a, a meal meant a whole lot more than just sitting down and, and eating something together. It meant sharing in something. It meant unity with somebody, right? Because you're eating of the same food. That, will, that same thing will become part of each of you. It's very symbolic for them to eat with somebody. But these people here in Antioch, they realized that they had been united in Christ. And the result was that the dividing walls between their cultures, between their ethnicity, they came down. And these people realized that no matter where they had come from, now they were one in Christ. They were family in Christ. They had been washed clean. They had been given new hearts and new lives. They had received a new identity. They had been born again and they became new people. So what happened is this. Peter, the apostle, he would come up to Antioch from time to time and he enjoyed himself there. And he would take part in this revolutionary thing that was happening there. Jews and Greeks becoming one in Christ, sharing meals together, sitting at the same table. And they would set aside these racial and cultural divisions and become brothers and sisters. But one day, this group of legalists came from Jerusalem. And you know, they came to spy out the freedom that these people were experiencing. They came to check it out. So these, these legalists from Jerusalem come to check out what's happening in Antioch. And Peter happens to be there at this time. And so these legalists, they, you know, you can imagine like when we do our potlucks over here uh, sometimes after church. You know, you can imagine if everybody was sitting separate, what a statement that would be. So these legalists from Jerusalem, they all sit separate from the Greeks from Antioch. They treat them as if they're second-class citizens as it, because those people don't keep the Jewish laws like they do. They're not circumcised. They don't keep the kosher diet. And here's what happens. Peter, who until now has been mixing with the Greeks, eating with them, now all of a sudden, he kind of turns his back on them. And he goes and he sits with the legalists. And he sits separate with them. He, he's fearing that they're going to label him as a liberal, that they're going to spread a, a bad reputation about him if he doesn't sit separate from the Gentiles. And so Paul stands up at this point and he calls him out on it. He says, Peter, man, last week when you were here, you were sitting over with our Greek brothers and sisters and you were eating with them. Down in Jerusalem, you agreed with us at the conference table that righteousness and justification don't come through circumcision and keeping the law, but they come through faith in Christ alone. And now these guys come down here and you act differently? He said, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You can't do that. He says in verse 18, Peter, you're rebuilding that which we've been trying so hard to tear down. We've been trying to preserve the purity of the gospel of grace and tear down legalistic thinking and ideas. And here you are. 
Rather than taking a stand for the gospel of grace, you're, you're siding with the legalists, you're giving in to them. And all these other people are following your example. Peter, we need to preserve the purity of the gospel of grace. Because here's the thing, legalism isn't just a bad habit. Legalism is a different gospel. That's why Paul says this at the end of the chapter. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Some translations, the old King James puts it this way. I do not frustrate the grace of God. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Now what does that mean, to frustrate the grace of God? How do you frustrate God's grace? Well, first of all, what is grace? Grace is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Grace is God being good to me and pouring out blessing upon me, not because I deserve it, but in spite of the fact that I will never deserve it, that I could never deserve it. Simply because he's a good God who loves me, even when I'm not lovable, even though I'm not lovable. That's grace. It's his gifts to you, not because of your merits, but because of his love for you. Now, how do you frustrate that grace? Come with me in your mind, if you will, to another dining table. Imagine that you want to show someone how much you appreciate them, so you decide to take them out to dinner at a nice restaurant. And, uh, and you know, you have a nice time. You're enjoying yourselves, you know, appetizers, drinks, you know, main course, you're getting dessert at the end. You know, that's kind of how it is when you're at a restaurant, right? It's like when you're ordering food, it's like money's not an issue. Oh, yeah, just bring more desserts, more anything. And then you get the bill and you're like, hey, what happened here, you know? I have no idea how we got this number. But anyway, so you're ordering all this stuff and then the bill comes. And this guy you invited, your guest, who you brought him to this meal to show him your appreciation, what does he do? He grabs that bill. And you say, what are you doing? Give me that. And the guest says, no. I don't let anybody pay for me. I pay for myself. I can cover myself. And you say, no, I insist. I invited you. You're my guest. This is something I want to do for you. I want to show you how much I appreciate you. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you do it. He's stubborn. He says, I'm going to pay the bill. So you just start getting in a fight right there. I mean, fists flying, you're wrestling, you got him under the table and kidney punches, but you can't get this bill away from him. And he, he hands his credit card to the, to the uh, waiter and the waiter takes it. And you're like, well, I tried as hard as I could, right? And, uh, and the waiter, he comes back and he runs the card on one of those little machines and the screen flashes red. And the waiter says, I'll be right back. A few minutes later, the police show up, they arrest your guest, and they take him to prison where he's later executed for insufficient funds. They say, you did not have enough money to pay for this. You had insufficient funds. He is executed. Now, would you not be frustrated? And here's why you would be frustrated. Because not only was your friend too proud to let you pay the bill, but he was incapable of paying it in the first place. That's frustrating, right? That's what Paul's talking about. He says, don't frustrate the grace of God. He says, I will not frustrate the grace of God. That's the message of Galatians chapter 2, that God wants to bless you by paying the bill. And if you say, no, 
I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to pay the bill for myself. Sooner or later, you'll discover that your funds are completely insufficient. If you refuse to accept the grace of God graciously, what happens is that you become poorer presently and you suffer eternally. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul even goes to this extreme, this extent in this statement. He says in chapter 5 verse 4, you are severed from Christ who would be justified by the law. If you want to be justified from the law, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now that's a pretty serious statement, right? That's pretty, uh, pretty serious there. And my encouragement for you today is this. Do not fall away from the grace of God. Don't try to be justified by God, by, before God, by your own efforts. Don't try to earn God's grace, but rather respond to it and receive it graciously and enjoy it. And I'll tell you this too. Enjoy it so much, receive it so much, enjoy it so much that you can't help but respond to it. Let me take you to one last table before we go. This one's also a dinner table. And this table is a place where we get a wonderful picture of what God's grace is and how God's grace works to transform our hearts. If you've got your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. As we look at this next table. 2 Samuel chapter 9, reading about King David, it says this. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I might show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So what we're reading here is part of the story of King David. Now before David was king, the guy who was the king before him, King Saul, David for some time served as a servant in King Saul's house. And during the time that he served in King Saul's palace, David became friends with Saul's son. They, they developed this friendship, Saul's son, Jonathan. So much so, they, they had this close-knit bond. So much so that it says that they were of one spirit and that they loved each other. This was a true friendship. It was deep friendship between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so with time, David became king and Jonathan died and Saul died. And David, because of his love for his friend Jonathan, he calls for Jonathan's servant, Ziba, and he asks if there's any way that he could show kindness, the kindness of God to the family of Saul. Is there anybody left from their family for the sake of Jonathan? Now this would be a, a very radical gesture 
Because uh, at that time, the common practice, I mean all the way up until even the 20th century, the common practice was that when a new king or a new administration came to power, many times they would have the previous king's entire family executed. So that no one could make a claim to the throne, right? They would kind of clean house. Uh, Jonathan did have one son who was still alive. He's the one we read about here. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, as you know, in those days, uh, a person's name was not kind of like a person's name today where you just kind of, uh, you know, you just pick whatever sounds good, right? Uh, Chris, Nick, if you got a lot of kids, then you're starting to have trouble figuring out names because just uh, we got a Chris, we got a Nick, we got a Joe. We don't know any other names, right? So anyway, in, in those days, though, that's not how they pick names. Your name was actually a description of your character and your name would actually change over the course of your life. That could happen, that your name changes as perhaps things about you change. Your character changes, you might get a different name. We see that multiple times throughout the Bible. And the name Mephibosheth, you know what it means? It's not a great name. It means living shame. Bummer of a name, right? Yeah, living shame. All right, so Mephibosheth... He's living in this place called Lodabar. Now guess what that means? That means nothingness, right? Uh, it's kind of a bummer of a name and a bummer of a place to live. I think I've actually been to this place before, actually. I, it's, called, uh, it's called Barstow, California. And if you've, uh, if you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't been there, I wouldn't recommend it, you know? <laughs> Uh, it's not that great. So this place, Lodabar, it's, it's, right at, it's actually outside of Israel. It's in Moab. It's in what's now the country of Jordan. And the reason Mephibosheth was there was because he's hiding. He's hiding from guess who? From David. Why? Because of what I said earlier. Because when a new king comes into power, the practice is you kill everybody from the old administration, right? All their family members so no one can make a claim to the throne. So he's afraid that David wants to kill him. So he runs off to this place in Moab, Lodabar, this nothingness, this worthless place. So think about this. How would you like to be this guy? A living shame, living in nothingness. And if that's not bad enough, here's the other thing. Mephibosheth is lame, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we read the story of how he became lame. Now, I mean like literally lame, like in his feet. He can't walk. He was a small child when, when David was coming into power. And his nanny grabbed him and she was running away. And as she was running, she dropped him. She fell, she dropped him, and he was injured, and he became lame. So please try to track with me here about all that's going on. There's a great parallel between Mephibosheth and you and I. Apart from Christ, this is who we are. Living shame because of our sin. Living in shame. Living shame because of our sin, which causes shame. We're living in nothingness. We have no hope, no purpose or meaning for our lives. And we are lame because of the fall, right? The fall into sin, just like Mephibosheth fell. Like Mephibosheth, we fear the king and we fled from him because of our fear of retaliation from the king. But guess what the king does? He says, I want to bless you. He says, you, yeah, you who are living in nothingness, who are living in shame, who are lame because of the fall, I want to bless you and I want to reach out to you. 
And so he sends his messenger, the Holy Spirit, to seek us out and to call us and to draw us to him. And so here's Mephibosheth, the son of, of Jonathan. We read this in verse 6 through 8 in that same chapter, chapter 9. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell at his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show such regard for a dead dog like me? Do you know uh, why the king showed Mephibosheth favor? Was it because Mephibosheth had his life all together because he was a, a useful guy? Because he was somehow profitable to the king? No, this man was a living shame. Did the king bless and, and welcome Mephibosheth in because Mephibosheth had done something for him? No. Mephibosheth was unable to do anything for him. In fact, he had run away from him. He was lame. He couldn't do anything for him. But David blessed Mephibosheth. Why? On the basis of his love for Jonathan. In spite of the fact that Mephibosheth was a living shame, in spite of the fact that he was lame, because of the fall, despite the fact that Mephibosheth had not sought him, but had actually run away from him, had actually thought badly of David's character. David showed him grace. It was undeserved. It was unearned. It was favor. David, the king, showed grace to Mephibosheth because of his father, just in the same way that the Lord shows us grace because of his son. Verse 9 says this, same chapter. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both his feet. So King David welcomes in lame Mephibosheth. He shows him favor. He blesses him. He seats him at his royal table and he treats him as a son. He doesn't treat Mephibosheth as a servant. He treats him as a son. He didn't take in Mephibosheth because he needed someone to work for him. Mephibosheth was unable to work for him. He was completely unable to pay back the king for his kindness, and David knew that going into it. Mephibosheth is lame in both his feet. That means that when he comes to the king's table, he doesn't run, he doesn't gallop, he doesn't hop, skip, and jump. He hobbles, right? He hobbles. And this is a great picture of grace. 
We have been accepted. We've been welcomed in by the king. We've been treated as sons and daughters. And now all we have to do is just hobble to the table of the king where we can be in fellowship with him, where he blesses us. And like Mephibosheth, right, we can come even though we're not perfect. All we need to do is work our way to the table where he blesses us, where we're in fellowship with him. And this idea of a table, again, it's very significant in the Bible. It refers to intimate fellowship. Again, in the Jewish mind, sharing a meal, sharing the same food was a very intimate, unifying act. That's why communion really is such a significant thing. It has roots in Judaism and Jewish thinking. Unity through sharing in the same meal. That's why the Jews from Jerusalem, they didn't want to eat with the Gentiles from Antioch. And this language of dining, it's used throughout the Bible. It speaks of fellowship with God. In Revelation chapter 3, near the end of the Bible, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Just like Mephibosheth, God knows that you are lame. He knows that I'm lame. And all he wants us to do is hobble to the table of fellowship and be with him. And here's the last thing I'll say. Guess what? This isn't the last time we see Mephibosheth. We see him one more time. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, we read about how one of David's sons, Absalom, he he mounted this rebellion against his dad. He decided that he was going to start a civil war and he wanted to take over his king and kind of oust his dad. And so Absalom actually succeeded in taking over the city of Jerusalem at one point. And David had to flee the city. And what we read there is this in chapter 19. Mephibosheth remained faithful to David to the end of his life. That's interesting because by remaining faithful to David, by refusing to recognize Absalom as the king, by refusing to bow his knee to Absalom, this usurper, he's risking his life. Why would he do that? He's a helpless man. Why would he risk his life like this? Here's why. Because his heart had been touched so much by the kindness of David, by the grace that David showed him, that he was so moved by it that he remained faithful to David all the days of his life. And the same will be true of you and I. You know that? When we realize God's grace for us, what happens when you let it sink in, when you think through the implications, here's what happens. It causes you to love him. It causes you to commit yourself to following him. Through good times, through bad times, through difficulty, we we will stay faithful to him who has been so good to us. Not in order to earn his favor, not because we think by doing that that he'll somehow give us his favor, but here's why. Because he has shown us favor. Because he does show us favor. Just like Mephibosheth, our love for the Lord uh, and our commitment to him It is in response to his grace and his goodness. So my prayer for us is this, that we would have a greater realization and appreciation for God's grace towards us. And like Mephibosheth, we would daily come to the king's table, experiencing his goodness and being in fellowship with him. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you have invited us to the table the place of fellowship with you. Lord, truly it is true that you stand at the door and knock 
waiting for those who will open the door and welcome you in. Lord, we who are here today, Lord, I pray that every single person who's here today would open that door to you today, that they would open the door that you might come into their life, that you might come into their heart and dine with them and share in fellowship with them. Lord, thank you for the story of Mephibosheth. Lord, that he's just like us. He's a living shame, living in nothingness, lame from the fall. But Lord, thank you that because of your great love for us, you reached out to us. In spite of the fact that we haven't done anything for you, in spite of the fact that we could never do anything to earn it. Lord, thank you that you welcome us to your table. You make us your sons and daughters and you call us to be family. Lord, thank you that the gospel breaks down boundaries and barriers between people. Lord, I pray if there's any one here today who's experiencing barriers in relationships and boundaries, Lord, I pray that the gospel would come into their life and tear down those barriers and boundaries, restore relationship, restore life. And finally, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who knows that you're knocking at the door of their heart but has not yet opened the door. Lord, may they open the door right now. May they open the door to you today. And if you're here today and that's you, I encourage you in your heart, pray and tell the Lord, Lord, I invite you into my life. I invite you to come in and Lord, dine with me. I receive your grace. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross. I'm yours completely. Amen.